welcome to Grace Point. Uh, Stan is on the way to Arkansas with with Ron and some of our uh, leadership council folks and some other folks in this wonderful thing that we have some alliance with called Timothy's Gift. They'll be uh, in, I don't even know how many prisons this week. I know for some of you all, you've been thinking it's just a matter of time to stand in a prison in Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> you're laughing too hard. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's a great, great ministry. It's a real honor and blessing that we have to get to be a part of that. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to have someone come to speak. We're going to see, see a video in just a second before that. So we've got a few things we want to deal with. So I'm going to introduce our speaker here, and, and then at the appropriate time, he'll get up and talk. Um, Jonathan Martin's an author, prototype, uh, How to Survive a Shipwreck, which is worth buying just on the title because... Again, many of us are shipwrecks. Podcaster, son of a preacher, man. Do I believe? I remember you're a son of a preacher and a, and a grandson of a preacher. So, uh, you know, he's, in fact, he's a hillbilly Pentecostal Episcopalian. That's, that's kind of an, almost an illicit combination in, in the world of religion. I have to mention, since I'm a professor, that he's a, he's a great student. Uh, because in his second master's degree, his THM at Duke, he was a student uh, under Stanley Hauerwas, who's uh, who's is for some of us probably the leading living theologian in the whole world right now. Church planter. Uh, I first came to know Jonathan through Renovatus in Charlotte, a very uh, impressive, impactful uh, ministry that he led there. He's a sought-after speaker. Uh, he's also really tall. I thought I'd go ahead and mention that because. You're going to notice that, and if I don't actually say that, you're going to like waste a few of your seconds of impression, like, wow. Yeah, he's really tall, and, and he's our speaker uh, this evening. And he'll come in just a few minutes after we see this video. Hey, Grace Point family. Wish I was with you tonight. Uh, I'd love to hear my good friend Jonathan preach. He's a great guy and a great speaker. Uh, I'm on the road, of course, with Timothy's Gift this week, our friend Ron Miller, and a bunch of Grace Point people like Harold Brusagar, Brian and Kathy Gilliland, Chris Holland, Jeff and Jen Bohannon. Anyway, we're in for a good week. Um, I wish I was there not just for Jonathan, but to hear the big announcement tonight with you of our new location, which I am standing at. I decided I would come over here today. It's Saturday, a day ahead, to a quick public service announcement for you guys. This is a beautiful location. You'll see some footage here in a minute of the inside of the building, get a little bit of a tour. But this is the old West Nashville United Methodist Church. Uh, the congregation ended a few years ago. This church was built back in the 1880s. Uh, it's just an incredible place. An investor has come in, turned it into an event space. Part of their business model was to have a church here on Sunday mornings. And we're gonna be that church. It's right here, situated on Charlotte, right off of 46th Street. Incredible location between Sylvan Park and the Nations. This is a beautiful, booming part of town, and I think this place is going to serve us well. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, say congratulations to us. Wish I was there. I'm sure the coming weeks are going to have a lot of great and exciting announcements, but here it is, uh, the new Grace Point location. God bless. Hope you guys had a great time tonight. We'll see you when I get back. hope you guys are excited as we are. Um, we are beyond thrilled 
to have finally found a home. It, I was thinking today, it feels like it's been so much longer than a year, <laughs> um, and it's it's been a year this month uh, that we moved here. You're probably wondering a whole bunch of questions. There are still things that we're figuring out. Midrash will still continue here um, for the t- uh, foreseeable future. The date, the big date, October 7th. So we've got about six weeks, seven weeks from tonight, and uh, we'll finally be back to Sunday mornings. This is going to be a community effort. We're going to be working through some details, trying to figure out what time exactly in the morning the service will be based on how long it takes to set up, tear down, when we can go in, when we have to be out. Um, So just keep your eyes out, keep your ears out uh, open. I guess if you have big ears, you can keep them out too, but uh, keep your ears open. This is going to be a community effort. We're going to need your help. We're going to need people to step up, but it's also going to be a great time to bring our community together as we finally get back to Sunday morning. So keep your eyes out for more details. Hey, thank you. Wow. I feel so anticlimactic now on the heels of that great announcement. How wonderful is that? Beautiful. I'm, uh, I'm just so honored to be here. First of all, I've been a huge fan of Grace Point from a distance for a long time, so I am thankful for the courageous witness that you have to the wideness of God's mercy, not only to this city, but to the world. Uh, I, thank you. That's perfect. Uh, I so believe in who you are and what you're doing. I certainly believe in my dear friend, Stan Mitchell, who's such a visionary leader and certainly someone who's shaped my life uh, from a distance. And now that I'm here in Nashville, we're getting to hang out a lot more, which is great. I just moved here like two months ago. I came the beginning of June. So I am new in town, but love being here and just genuinely so, just so grateful for what God's doing in this community. So congratulations on the big news. I just think this move to Sunday morning, the location, all that's so, so beautiful. I got to hang out here last Sunday night just to take in a service uh, and, and was so moved and already just have such a sense of just like, Man, y'all are, y'all, are just, y'all are just my kind of people, so thanks for making me feel so at home here, and I'm just glad to be able to pinch hit for Stan tonight. I hope nobody's too disappointed. I will, uh, uh, Stan has a lot of other things on me, but I, I am a little bit taller. There is that. I will, if that, if that gives, I have the slight height advantage, that is all. Um, but man, what a beautiful soul that he is, and what a beautiful community you have here. I don't want to spend too much time visiting, but I do need to say real quick, Part of the reason I moved to Nashville, because I do write and speak and do lots of other things, uh, I moved here largely because of friends, and so a number of them are here tonight making me uh, just, just feel especially just, just welcome. So I'm grateful uh, for Donnie and Reba Rambo McGuire and some of my friends from the river who are here. They're awesome. Uh, Luke and Krista Black Gifford are also here, just some of my dearest friends in the world, and they're part of the reason I, I came to town to begin with. So really great to have them. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to go if you want to go ahead and turn there and, uh, and or your electronic devices. As you're doing that, by way of preface, Jeff, thank you for the delightful introduction. I am uh, kind of a self-proclaimed hillbilly Pentecostal Episcopalian, which really just sounds like a way of saying that I'm, that I'm very confused. Isn't that what that sounds like? A lot of weird intersections that my life is at. But I, I, I suspect a lot of you understand what it's like to live at some strange intersections. A lot of us do. We'll get into some of that story as I go. But I wanted to share a text with you tonight that is a familiar one, but really has just kind of become my, my life text for this season. I feel like so much of my journey is bound up in it, so much of, to the extent that I discern these things, and I, 
don't want to be presumptuous about that. Uh, but what I discern God doing in broader culture right now in the church, capital C, uh, just, just been spending a lot of time here for about the last year. And it seems like every time I go here, the Holy Spirit's showing me something new. So I hope there'll be something here uh, that will really speak to you tonight. But let's, uh, let's pray just before we jump into that. God, I'm so grateful for the gift of these, your people. I am thankful for the brave witness of this church and for her leaders. I am thankful for their lampstand. I'm thankful for the very real power of a real Holy Spirit that is in our midst now. We've already sensed you in the worship. We've already discerned you at work through the gift of each other. We just want to yield ourselves now and make ourselves available for you to speak to us. For you, Spirit of God, to hover over us, to speak into us, to guide us. So we just take this moment just to, just to still ourselves now, our minds and our hearts, and just be open and yielded to your presence. Your presence that is nothing but perfect love. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Speak to us now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Luke chapter 24, I'll go right to the text, beginning with verse, th- verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I was reading this text a little bit before Easter, and the thing that screamed at me I'd never seen before is that for these two disciples who are now walking to Emmaus, I thought plenty about the walk to Emmaus, never really thought about the fact that they're walking away from Jerusalem and all that's bound up in that simple detail. These disciples, like all the earliest followers of Jesus, are faithful, devout Jews who understand Jesus to be the Messiah, the anointed one. They do not see themselves as starting a new religion or a new movement. They kind of see themselves as part of a reform movement within Judaism. So Jerusalem for them is everything. Jerusalem is the center of the universe. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Everything about their social, civic, religious life, everything has been oriented around Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been ground zero now for this new work that God is doing through Jesus of Nazareth. Jerusalem is the holy place. And as they now believe that Jesus has come as God's anointed one to fulfill God's promises and ultimately to somehow vindicate Israel over against her enemies, all of their hopes and dreams had been pinned on how Christ would make himself known in Jerusalem, in the holy place, inside the walls of the sacred city. And yet now this place that has been so sacred for them, this ground that's been so hallowed, this place that has been so holy is the very same place where they've now seen Jesus of Nazareth tortured and killed. So the space that once was consecrated has now been desecrated. The place that once was holy is now the site of unholy terrors. Some of us us know exactly what it's like to be in some spaces that we regarded as consecrated spaces that then became desecrated spaces, where the very same place that once brought us peace, comfort, that once there was something familiar and wonderful, a place that once felt like home, now is kind of the, 
the crime scene. That's what happened for these disciples. So I'm convinced that bound up in the fact that they're walking away from Jerusalem, and I think it's fully appropriate. You know, I am a hillbilly Pentecostal, so I will fully Pentecostalize this text. They're not just walking away from Jerusalem. The walk away from Jerusalem is the walk away from God. Don't miss that. They're walking away from the temple. They're walking away from everything that the institution represents. They're walking away from an entire way of life, an entire kind of ordered religious life. They're walking away from all of it in deep, deep despair. And note, they are not looking for hope. They're not looking for God. They're not looking for resurrection. The only thing that's transpiring on this journey is that the two of them are talking about, the text says, the things that have transpired in these last few days. In other words, they're talking about their despair. They're talking about their pain. They're having an authentic, vulnerable conversation between friends about the awful things that they've experienced. And I love the fact that it's in the midst of this authentic, vulnerable conversation between friends that is not going anywhere else except the, the, the pain of their souls. That's the only thing that they're sharing. That Jesus comes and walks alongside them. Don't get me wrong. I believe that we live all of our lives in the presence of God. God is always with us. I, I know that it's only our awareness that comes in and out. But I also believe on some level there's something about vulnerability that just cracks us open to the presence of God in a conscious way. It just does. There's something different about that. I think it draws the spirit like moth to flame. The very moment that people get vulnerable, have you ever noticed that even in the most unsacred kinds of settings, that when people kind of cross the line into really having a soulish conversation, that there's something about the temperature in the room that changes just a little bit? I mean, let, let's, let's, let's be honest here. People who are honest and vulnerable with each other in a bar are infinitely closer to the conscious presence of God than people who are not vulnerable in the church. Is that fair enough to say? Because it's, just, it's precisely in this context when people get open and get vulnerable, the presence of Jesus is just there in a conspicuous way. You don't have to invite him. You don't have to be looking for him. You don't have to be looking for anything at all. There's just something about that kind of vulnerability and openness and candor to where things suddenly get real spiritual real quick, with or without your consent. Because the very moment that you start to open up the things that are in the depths of your soul, God is richly present in a different way, but in a form that they did not recognize. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. They don't know who this stranger is, which leads into, I actually think this passage is maybe the funniest in the New Testament, if, if you know what you're reading here. <laughs> Their eyes are kept from recognizing him, and Jesus says to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Verse 18. Then one of them whose name was Cleopas answered him. I love this. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? Isn't that an amazing question? What's far more amazing, though, is Jesus' response. I, and I fully get this. Think kind of like the Ricky Gervais office. Any, any form of like the most awkward humor you've ever heard. The comic timing of Jesus in this text is unparalleled. I love the response, just two words. Are you the only person who doesn't know what's happened in these days? And Jesus replies, what things? 
Like four of you find this funny. Thank you, Krista, thinks this is funny. That's why I have my friends here. What things, like do you hear the subtext there? Whatever do you mean? Something's happened? I mean, the person who's just been tortured and killed, they're asking, are you the, are you the only one who, who hasn't heard about Jesus being tortured and killed? Oh, something happened? What things? Tell me more about that. I think that's brilliantly funny, but I, I'm, I'm in the minority, evidently. They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. You know, I'd never really thought about that particular verse before. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. You know, there is, um, some of us have walked through some pretty serious pain. I know I have. Um, I walked through um, several years ago a really difficult divorce, which was not something I ever could have conceived for my life from where I come from in this holiness Pentecostal context. A lot of us know what it's like to experience loss and grief and if you've ever been through any kind of like really serious trauma, any serious pain, you know that the worst moment is not the moment when it all happens. It's not the moment when it all breaks loose. It's the moment where you allow yourself to hope for something new and better, and that hope turns out to be false hope. The disciples have already lived through some things, and now they've pinned all their hopes on Jesus and they were just certain that he was the one, and they were just certain that he was the Messiah who's going to lead some kind of a militaristic overthrow of Roman oppression in their region. They just knew it, and now their hopes have been dashed. There's something unique about it. We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, which begs the question, and again, I'd never really thought about this before a few months ago, is Jesus the one who redeems Israel? I'd never thought about it that way. Does he actually redeem Israel? I mean, I think there's one sense in which, as I think a more or less orthodox Christian, that I would say, well, yeah, sure, Jesus comes to redeem Israel. But that comes with an awfully big caveat of, but not in a way that anybody thought that he would, not in the form that anybody was looking for, because what are they expecting? These, this is an oppressed people group who know what it's like to live under years of oppression. Their story goes all the way back to the times of the Pharaoh. They know what it's like to live in Babylonian captivity. They know what it's like to live under the Persians. They, um, they, they, all the things that we read about in the Old Testament. And now to live under the thumb of the Roman Empire, they know what it is to be an oppressed people and their hope was, their hope was that God was going to come in such a way to where finally he would vindicate Israel, he would validate their witness, he would set Israel apart from all the rest of the nations like he promised to do. When is that day going to come? That's what the disciples keep pestering Jesus. When is that time going to come? When you're going to come and restore Israel to our place of prominence. When is that time coming, Jesus? That's the question that's pressing on everybody. And here's the thing, is that even before Jesus was crucified, that kind of redemption never was going to happen. That kind of rescue was never in the cards. 
God was never going to come to do this in the way that they thought. You know, I don't say this in a way to be like glib or cavalier, because especially in the moment when we're in deep despair or pain, and so many of us know what it's like to walk away from a church in disillusionment and despair. So many of us know what it's like to be severely, severely hurt. And I'm not the kind of person that believes that God orchestrates that kind of pain to teach us an object lesson. It's not, I don't believe that God does that. I do believe that God, basically God's job description is to bring beauty out of brokenness though. That there's nothing that God can't use, nothing that God can't leverage. And I wonder if in these times when there's this kind of disillusionment and despair and everything about the old system is falling apart, I wonder if there's not really a way in which we actually needed this kind of experience all along, if we actually needed to be broken open like this. No, we wouldn't choose to go through it you know, again. The, the pain is way too great, all those kinds of things. But I wonder, Jesus was never going to come in the form that they thought. Let me put it like this. What happens through hundreds of years of oppression for Israel is that the best thing that anybody can hope for now is that God is going to come once again in a way that's going to vindicate Israel over and against their enemies. But here's the the promise as it was originally given to Abraham. God told Abraham, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you this great family. Some of y'all remember the song if you went to Sunday school, don't you? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. Let's just right arm, left arm, nod your head. Any, anybody, anybody go to Sunday school, Southern people, like I'm a, my Southern, all the Father Abraham stuff. What, that's, the, that's the covenant. I'm going to give you many sons, many daughters. I'm going to make you this great nation. But, but where was the covenant always going? God said, I will do this for you, Abraham, so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The covenant that God made to Israel ultimately was for the sake of the rest of the world. It was always about everybody else. It was always about everybody else. The way my friend Dr. Chris Green puts it, God chooses the elect, another sermon for another time, has nothing in the world to do with salvation, everything to do with vocation. God chooses the elect for the sake of the non-elect. Some are especially called out for the sake of those who have been left out. Anything good God ever did for Israel ultimately was for the sake of the world. But through all that pain, heartache, and oppression, then what once was a global promise, what once was a universal promise that had implications for all people, for all the families of the earth, now became uniquely the hope of a a tribalistic people. We hope that the day will come when God will show that we're right and they're wrong. That's the kind of day we were looking for. We were looking for the day when God was going to vindicate us. Here's the thing. Jesus was coming to redeem Israel. But the bad news embedded in that good news, depending on where you're standing, is that Jesus didn't come just to redeem Israel. Jesus came to redeem the Romans too. The scandal of the gospel, and I tread softly when I say it because I don't even know how to work all this out, is that Jesus comes not only to redeem the oppressed, but even to redeem the oppressor. If there's not hope for the oppressor at the same table, it is not yet the gospel of Jesus. This is not good news for everybody. (laughs) 
<laughs> not at first. You know, my sense right now, because we are in a time when so many systems are shaking, political systems are shaking, ecclesiastical systems are shaking, church systems are shaking, some things are shaking that maybe we think ought to be shaken, other things are being shaken that we don't think should be shaken. But my general sense of the, what the Holy Spirit's doing in all this, because I hope you all know the Holy Spirit is often an agent of chaos in a way. There has to be chaos before there's new life. I really believe that in way, for way too many of us who have come out of all kinds of religious communities, the promise just got way too small. Our faith got way too small. Our hope was way too constricted. And there was no way that that small, little, tiny, tribalistic faith could possibly be broken open to a big, all the families of the earth have hope faith unless it was through the path of significant pain. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? Only thing that will do it, pain, pain, disillusionment, despair that breaks us open. Yes, God is coming for us, but God's also coming for them. <laughs> oh, oh, there's, oh, actually, there doesn't get to be in us and them anymore. Oh, like the, all of these things. Just, I could do this all night. Let me get back to the text. This will keep me on task. We hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Verse 28, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. Now, lest you thought before that I'm kind of reading the comedy into the text, just note those words as if. I mean, do you hear? Jesus acted as if he was going to go. What is that telling? Jesus is punking them. There's no other way to read this. Jesus is totally punking the disciples. He acted as if he were going to go on, which clearly indicates he didn't intend to go on. That's one of the things I love most about Jesus, and this is a footnote. I find this to be so characteristic of the presence of God in general. There's a playfulness to it. There's this playfulness. You know, anybody know anything about the mischief of God? Like, man, I'm just, people who know God well, too, tend to be deeply, they have that streak of mischief in them, right? He acts as if he were going to go on. Clearly, that's not his intention, but I love their response. They urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. They're at that point in their journey where they don't yet recognize this is Jesus, they don't have any full revelation of what's happening to them, but there's just enough of awareness. There's just enough recognition to say, I don't know exactly what's happening here, but this is good. Could you stay a little while longer? Could you maybe not leave just yet? And there's just that, that, that simple invitation. So he went in to stay with them in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, 
while he was opening the scriptures up to us. I have completely lost track of time because I'm lost at what I'm doing, but I'd like to just land here for the last few moments if we can. That this whole journey that starts with an authentic, vulnerable, new community, so ironic, again, they're walking away from their old community, and yet the very fact that two people are sharing pain in an honest way means that they're creating a new community in which now Christ is present without an invitation. This is one of the reasons why, as much as I'm a product of the church and also a product of a lover's quarrel with the church, serve the church in many ways, I'll always believe in church, and I love the things that we do at church. But this is why I do not want to be that person who's trying to beg people to stay in Jerusalem. <laughs> Please stay in the sacred city. Please stay in the, Because I am fully confident in the God who meets people on the road, if I can say it like this, the God who will walk with you on the road away from God. That's what we get in Jesus. The God who will actually walk with you on the path away from God. <laughs> so I'm fully confident in how God meets people in that kind of road, on that kind of space. They recognize it enough to say, stay a little while longer. But it's not until this moment when he breaks the bread that they recognize exactly who he is. I don't know if this is going to feel like a left turn in this sermon, but it doesn't feel like one to me. The biggest shift in my life, theologically and otherwise, is that coming from a place where I, the place that I come from, where I honor so many things about my roots that I appreciate, but where there wasn't a lot of emphasis on communion, never used the word Eucharist, but was a lot in the Lord's Supper. I, I, to be honest with you, I hated taking the Lord's Supper because, oddly, we believed it was symbolic, so there's only so much good it could do you, except if you had sin in your life when you took it, then you would literally actually die. So to me, taking communion was like, that's how we interpreted Paul. I'll treat that passage another time, but it's kind of like Russian roulette. You know what I'm saying? The best case scenario is that nothing will happen to you. That's the best case. So whenever we serve communion, I literally have snuck out of services where there was communion because I was so scared about what, and what unexamined things I was worried about when I was like 12, I do not know, but I was so, so petrified of these things. But honestly, at this point in my life, the Eucharist has become so central. I don't want to overstate the case but it is the center of my faith. I love all the other things that Christians do. It, for me, it's the reason I come to church. It's the reason why Christians gather. I went to an Episcopal church this morning just because if I'm not preaching on a Sunday morning and somebody's offering the body and blood of Jesus for free, I'm getting there. I believe that much in it. I believe in the real presence of Jesus that's mediated. I don't understand that metaphysically. Who does? I believe very much in the real presence of Jesus. Because part of what I love about this meal, as much as I think that all meals are sacramental and all meals are holy and we should give thanks for all meals. And yes, there's a way that all of creation is embedded with the holiness of God. There's something about this meal. There's something about that particular meal that opens up our eyes. There's something about that sacrament that makes us aware. There's something about that moment that just opens us up. So we have that consecrated meal precisely because it teaches us how to consecrate all the others. But there, there is something about that meal. I've got so many stories right now. Can you all indulge me a couple more minutes? I hope you're not, you're fine. I hope you're not bored. So I, I, I was thinking earlier this week, I hadn't thought about this story in a while. I've got a good friend named JC who grew up in Honduras and was part of a street gang when he was 14 years old. And you know, they were doing some pretty bad things. They tried to burn down the church. Well, that's pretty bad. 
It's Assemblies of God Church. And him and his friends, basically, they like put a padlock on the church while a group of them were in a prayer meeting. And they poured a trench of gasoline all the way around the church and tried to light it on fire. And much to their dismay, they couldn't get their matches to light. They went through several books of matches, could not light a trench of gasoline, which scared them. And like three months later, a youth pastor from this little Pentecostal church invited my friend JC to go on a youth retreat. So he goes on the, on the youth retreat, and if you know anything about that world, like especially Latin American Pentecostals, it's pretty intense. So he didn't know until he got there that they fast for the weekend. <laughs> they kind of imposed fasting. There's no food. And he's miserable and sad that he came, hating the whole experience. But he tells about how on that last morning, they, just, they ended the time with communion. And because those churches are fairly strict, and the, the table, therefore, is pretty constricted, I believe in a very open table, but, you know, he wasn't going to be allowed to take the elements because he hadn't been baptized within the church. Like, you know, you can't. So he's watching everybody else, and they're doing evangelical style with their little cups and their little wafers or whatever. And he said that while he watched other people taking communion, there was such a stirring in his heart that he wanted it so bad that he found that while everybody else was eating the bread, he mimed eating a piece of bread as if he were. And when everybody else was taking their cup, he mimed drinking the cup. So he does this. I don't know how you feel about this story. I don't really care. And he wakes up 40 minutes later speaking in tongues. <laughs> I love this. I love it partly because it screws with everything, you know, because I'm a person who believes in like real presence and communion, but how do you articulate a, a, a doctrine of real presence in mimed communion? The point is that his heart was open to God somehow in this meal in a way that allowed something supernatural to happen. I mean, in, you know, in evangelical terms, where did, you, where did you pray the prayer? Where did you invite Jesus into your heart? His heart said yes. Next thing you know, he's speaking tongues, doesn't know what happened to him. I love that story so much because I think the Holy Spirit is so disruptive in that way. But, while, but, but again, I would just want to stress, and I really am ending with this. Thank you for letting me take my time. I do believe that that table is so open to anyone and everyone. There's a reason why the Gospels give so much attention to the scandal of the table ministry of Jesus. There's a reason why we read about that over and over again in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is your teacher eating together with tax collectors and sinners? Because these gospels were written to early Christian communities for whom the Eucharist was their central practice. And the message that the evangelists are trying to get through to them is, you guys, when you come into your communities and you come to the Lord's table, you need to practice the way that Jesus practiced it. Opened everybody. In the same way that Jesus was never afraid of touching someone who was considered ceremonially unclean because it works in reverse, the life and wholeness in, in, in of Jesus gets on to us. We don't defile him. That's the same way it works at the table of the Lord. It's there for every. The only thing that ever keeps anybody from the table of the Lord is shame. Or crazy religious people like some of us have been that put constrictions on the, on the guest list. I really am done with this story. My, um, at the church I pastored in Charlotte, after we made this move to where the Eucharist became so central, we had a college and young adult ministry that met on Tuesday night. Really wonderful. Like about 150, 20-somethings would come every week to worship. And my good friend Teddy was leading the service. And, and the table became very much central for them as well. And um, there was one night in particular where he gave the invitation to come to the table as he would do. And he noted that on the end of his row that there was a guy who was there for the first time who didn't come forward. 
And of course, very much the spirit of that ministry. There was you know, no coercion, no pressure, but he just, he just felt like he needed to talk to him. So he goes and he sits down beside the guy and he just says real gently, hey, I know it's your first time here. Don't know if you feel uncomfortable in any way at all. Don't want to put any pressure on you. But if you would want to come to the table, I'd be happy to go with you to come and like receive the elements. And he said, the guy's just, I mean, he's just, he sees then that he's been weeping. He's crying, head in his hands. Like, man, I just can't do it. My life, my life is just not in the right place. I just don't feel like I could do that right now. So Teddy said, okay, certainly respect that. That's fine. Can I pray for you? The guy says, sure. So Teddy just puts his hand on his knee and just gently starts to pray for him. And as he's praying for him in this moment, this is what he felt like the Holy Spirit gave him to pray. He said, Lord, for whatever reason, my, my brother doesn't feel like he can come to the table right now. And this is what he said in prayer. I still love just his instinct here. He said, if he's not coming to the table, I'm not interested in coming either. I'd rather be here with him. But I pray, this is what he felt like the Holy Spirit gave him to pray. I pray that since he doesn't feel comfortable coming to the table, that somehow you would bring the table to him. And Teddy told me later that in his mind what he was thinking is that this was like, you know, bring him the spiritual food, like the spiritual manna or whatever. He says, he says amen to this prayer. And our friend Brian Brown, who was one of the communion servers that night at the front of the church, who was holding the bread and the cup for that line, had left the line with people still standing at it and was kneeling in front of this kid on the other side of the room. And when he opens his eyes, Brian says, hey man, I don't know who you are, I hope this doesn't weird you out, but I was serving communion up there and while I was doing it, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I need to come to you and and bring these elements to you for you to receive. In which case, he starts sobbing and then partakes of the elements. And I love that story so much because to me it says it all. That's what Christ's table has always been about. That, that table that even when we feel too unworthy because of our own shame to come, that he comes to us, that he extends that invitation to us, and that it is in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine that Christ is present. Stand with me so I won't talk all night. And let me just pray for you just for a moment. My prayer is simply for this moment. Not that we're leading into some kind of a communion time. But I do believe that Christ is richly present with us. And I do believe I'm in a room full of people who also are brave enough to be vulnerable and open. And I'd just love for us just to close our eyes now just for a moment. for a, Just to sit in that presence of the one who loves us. Lord, I just lift up to you now my friends who are here. Many of us who know what it's like to be disillusioned. Many of us who know what it's like to know the despair. Many of us who even now are going through our own kind of deconstruction. And there are all kinds of things we don't know what we think about or how to think about. And yet somehow in the midst of those things, there is this presence that is your presence. So we just pause in this moment just to though we never quite know what we mean when we say it, just to say yes to that presence. I pray, God, that for everyone here who's in a place where consecrated spaces have become desecrated and the world seems upside down, God, I just pray for your peace and for your comfort. And I pray that for even for those of us who in this moment don't quite know how to reach out to you, don't know how to pray, don't know how to articulate what we need, don't even know how to invite you 
into the midst of it. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who always comes to us, that even we can't come to the table, you bring it to us. And I pray that for your sons and daughters who are here now, that in whatever form they need it most, that you would bring the table to them, bring the feast to them, bring the wine to them. I commend them to your presence now in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.